Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. I want to dive right in with a few verses of Scripture if you want to open your Bibles, or you can read it off the screen, but I really encourage you uh, to be bringing your Bibles and learning just it's good practice finding it in the actual your actual Bible. If you want to get really, uh, doesn't hurt to think conspiratorially. Sometimes it keeps us on our toes. You never know what we're put, if what we're putting up on the screen is the actual Bible, right? You need to check it against your Bible every now and then. It is. We'll never do that in the name of Jesus. But in Second Chronicles uh, chapter fourteen is where we're going to be looking. Just a really quick. I don't want to. Can't reteach this whole thing, but it's been a while. Now, you remember in the early days of uh, Israel, well, uh, Lisa mentioned the Battle of Jericho. That's when they went, finally began to inhabit the land of promise. And they lived there. Uh, Joshua was their leader until he died. And then we entered what's known as the period of the judges, where for three, uh, 300 years or so, uh, they lived. Uh, they were supposed to be living by the law of God. Uh, but God would raise up leaders known as judges. There was no king in Israel. Uh, and the pattern was as long as there was a good judge, things went well. And when the good judge died, people would revert back to their sinful ways. And then uh, they would have to repent when the enemy came in. And then God would raise up another good judge, etc. And at one point, the people began to cry out for a king. Long story short, God gave them a king. First king was who? Saul. Saul was the first. Well, yeah, the, guy, the first good king was David. Saul died, and then David became king, and David was a man after God's own heart. He, was the, he remained the role model, the perfect king of Israel. And um, his son Solomon inherited a, a kingdom from his father that had went, in which all the enemies had been subdued, and they had plenty of uh, income coming in in the form of tribute and taxes, and Solomon built the temple, he built the, built the palace, he built all these marvelous things, and these, these, these were the golden days of Israel. And when Solomon died, there was a tax revolt against Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And Jeroboam, Solomon's servant, split off and started his own kingdom. And what happened was the kingdom split. Essentially, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin became the kingdom of Judah in the south. And the other ten tribes became the northern kingdom of Israel. And then from then on through the history of kings and then restated in Chronicles, you had those two kingdoms. Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. Judah is the good kingdom. That's where Jerusalem is. That's where the temple is. It's the proper place of worship. Israel was more or less in a perpetual state of rebellion. Israel had all bad kings, some of them worse than others. Judah had mostly bad kings, but they had uh, some shining stars of good kings, some better than others, and... In the early days there, you had, like I said, Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, and then Abijah, and then Asa. Abijah wasn't a terrible king, but he wasn't a good one. Asa was a great one. Asa was a good king. And we're going to read, we're not going to read the whole story, but I encourage you to. It's a couple chapters there in Second Chronicles. You can get another view of it in uh, Kings as well. But the best uh, account of it is in Second Chronicles. And we will read, in, beginning in verse 1 of Second Chronicles chapter 14. So Abijah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land was quiet for ten years. 
Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God, for he removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. Read verse 4 again. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. Now, here we are in an election year. In fact, we're about there, aren't we? Democracy, or a republic, like we live, democratically elected representative republic, is, I believe, demonstrably, the best form of human government on the planet today. I saw a pretty sharp meme the other day that, uh, that in the, it just, the, the point it was making that for all of the, you know, hear a lot about socialism or communism these days and how what we really need to do, there needs to be a, a more of a socialist agenda. And they might not call it that, but that, you know, we're not blind. We know what, the, what certain, uh, certain people are aiming for. We need more of a socialist, you know, talking about more of an equal distribution of wealth, etc. But for all the people touting socialism as a fairer and juster way of running a country, how many times are people caught trying to sneak across the border into socialist countries? You don't really have that problem, do you? People aren't uh, risking arrest trying to sneak into Argentina. Right? Uh, or China. Or, or any, any number of places. Uh, no, but, but you, you, you challenge people with that and they'll say, no, we're not saying those are good places to live. That's not the issue. The issue is the system is, is right. They're just doing it wrong. We could take that system and make it work here. We could do it right. Now, listen, if we had a king over us, and if we're going to abandon democracy, why don't we consider a monarchy? What if we had a king? And if the king's edict was that we seek the Lord, you know, that'd be a good thing, wouldn't it? I mean, if the king were commanding us to do what was right, living in a kingdom wouldn't be bad. So what's the problem? The problem is, with monarchies, is that you don't know what the king will do but he's still the king. If the king issues edicts that are evil, it's going to go badly for the country as a whole. It's better not to place that much power in the hands of one man, especially knowing what we know about the sinful nature of mankind. So democracy is obviously the way to go. If we get a bad leader, we can fire him or her. We can vote in a better one. Problem with that, of course, with the power being in the hands of we the people, is that we the people are also sinful as a race. And as sin creeps further and further into society, we the people will vote more and more for sinful people to have the power. We will vote in those people whose sin is most like ours. Way back when we first started going through the Bible, going back into Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, we saw how quickly sin propagated and how dramatically, how dramatically and how quickly all of mankind drew, uh, became corrupt. In just a relatively few centuries, the earth was already crying out for judgment. 
It says that God repented that he had made man. Sin has a progressively and cumulative corrosive effect on humanity. It has this effect on morality. And king, no king and no commoner is immune to this. No voter is immune to this. No elected official is immune to this. And I'm talking, when I say this, I'm talking about that progressive and cumulative corrosive effect on our humanity and on our morality. And we know this. We know this. We of all people ought to be living and sharing the only thing that works when it comes to fixing society and fixing humanity. What works? The gospel. Only the gospel. Only the gospel of all the world's religions claims the power to fundamentally transform individuals by offering them rebirth. You say, well, uh, that's not true. Hinduism does that. Buddhism does that, doesn't it? Isn't that what reincarnation is? I'm talking about rebirth in the here and now. Not talking about, well, you get another chance to do it better when you die. No, he can change your heart today. He can change anybody's heart today. And this is what we have to understand. We know this, but we've got to be reminded, especially right now, in this moment in our history, the problem is not a bad system. The problem is sin. We can get behind people who are, who are shouting and, and uh, campaigning on the issues that we believe in, and we should vote for those people, but they are not going to be the solution. Right policies are not the solution. People have to be put right. People have to be made right. And only the gospel claims that we can be made a new creature, given a new nature. You know, they say you can't legislate morality, but you kind of can. You can't legislate people into being moral beings, but you can legislate morality. You can, you can pass laws that cause people, or at least urge people, to act morally. Laws can be passed and should be passed that encourage and reflect uh, morally correct positions. And a significant number of people will obey these laws even if they disagree. Now I'm talking uh, on one end of the scale things like speed limits, seat belts, drinking and driving. There's some people who might say there's nothing wrong with doing those things, but I'd rather obey the law than get arrested. Local ordinances. Most people recognize, even without the threat of the law, that things like murder and stealing are wrong. The law exists for people who do it anyway. The law doesn't exist for you and me. It's not supposed to. Uh, when, when, when somebody says, hey, look, that door's open and there's a pile of cash on the table, wouldn't you like to have it? Yeah, I would. Well, why don't you take it? One person says, because I want to go to jail. You and I should say, because it's not mine. What the law, so the law can govern people's behavior. And so good laws should be passed. But what the law cannot do is change our desires. The law cannot change our hearts. That's, remember, after all those books, all the prophecies, all the history, that's really the central message of the Old Testament. 
is that our hearts are wicked, and the law, even though the law is perfect, the law can't change our hearts. I may never kill a person in anger, but I might want to. If I'm an unbeliever, God has changed my heart. I have no desire to kill anybody, at least not in here. <laughs> I might never steal, but I might want to. I am perfectly capable of recognizing how wrong something is and desiring it at the same time. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? The danger in a democracy, and where we are quickly approaching if we haven't gotten there yet, is when a sufficient number of people believe that what the Bible calls evil is actually good, and what the Bible calls good is actually evil. A monarchy is a good thing when the king is good. And the sad history of Israel and Judah show us that more often than not, the king is not good. What I find truly fascinating as I read through Kings and Chronicles and the history of ancient Israel is that the fortunes of the nation were changed for the better or for the worse depending on who was king. When the king issued an edict like Asa did here, commanded the people to seek the Lord. They didn't raise their fists and say, I can do what I want, I'm a free citizen. The people were generally quite willing to do what the king told them to do. But they were very quick to revert to idolatry when a bad king was in charge. And the bad king didn't have to stand up and say, I hereby proclaim you shall serve your idols. They didn't do that. They just led by example. And the people in their sin, sin nature quickly, quickly followed that example. And then the good kings, like Asa, would clean those messes up in the form of these new edicts, these new laws, and they would outlaw idol worship, tear down these places of worship. And so this is what we see. Asa inherits a mess from his father, but cleans the country up and has 10 years of peace. He removed these altars of the foreign gods and commanded Judah to seek the Lord and to observe the law and the commandment. And then, we, again, we have 10 quiet years. And during those years, Asa begins a series of reforms, including some of the stuff we just talked about, basic religious reforms. Uh, and this was an extension of his, uh, his command to seek the Lord. And it progressed to fortifying, uh, fortifying cities, uh, especially the outpost cities, not just Jerusalem, uh, but basically a defense program. Uh, they had a well-trained and well-equipped army. And all of these things, uh, and this is important, is that all these improvements, all this seeking the Lord took place in a time of peace. We see plenty of examples of the people getting things right, especially in terms of the spiritual stuff, the religious reforms, when there's this panicked repentance. Oh no, we've got to turn back to God because we're in trouble. And God in his faithfulness heard them again and again and again. This wasn't the case. They had 10 years of peace. And what did they do with this time of peace? They used it to prepare their hearts and to prepare their nation. And even though it doesn't come right out and say it, what they are preparing for 
is a battle. So then in the tenth, and, and this is really, keep in mind, we, we've talked about this many times and you've experienced many times. When things are good, when things are prosperous, when things are easy, for some reason we have a tendency to ignore God. When we should be thanking him profusely for these times of peace and these times of abundance. And we should be using this downtime to prepare our hearts. And Asa was one of these rare guys who not only did the right thing in the hard times, he did the right thing in the easy times. And then what happens in the 10th, I guess the 11th year of Asa's reign, Zerah, the Ethiopian, led a million-man army with 300 chariots against Judah. We can pick this up in 2 Chronicles chapter 14, beginning in verse 11. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it's nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord God, for, uh, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar. And so the Ethiopians were overthrown, and they could not recover, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. And they carried away very much spoil. And then when they returned to Jerusalem, in 2 Chronicles chapter 15 now, 2 Chronicles 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Azariah the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times there was no peace, from the, uh, peace to the one who went out or to the one who came in, but great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you be strong and do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Now we've talked about this before. Several times you can read in Scripture when a prophet comes out to meet a king, it's not often a pleasant meeting. A prophet is usually there with the job to confront the king, to rebuke the king. And so I don't know if Asa was thinking one way or another. He's coming back from a great battle, carrying back very much spoil. And here comes Azariah to meet him and basically says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, we can both look back over Israel's history and see what a mess it's been. Whenever they're without God, they're in bad times. You've been doing the right thing. You know what I want you to do? Thus saith the Lord, keep on doing it. You're being a good king, keep being a good king. This is very, very encouraging. And so what does he do? He starts reforming in earnest. He had already removed the public places of false worship. Now he goes through the land and outlaws their, their private, uh, their, their personal statues and idols, and he removes all of them from all of Judah. He scours the land. He restores the altar. Remember, uh, remember this, when... when uh, this is really interesting. As I mentioned, it was Judah and Benjamin who formed the nation of Judah. And the other tribes became the nation of Israel. But after these, all of these reforms, now listen, there was a great victory. In fact, uh, 
Hayford points out in his commentary on this passage that a million men in this army is the single largest army ever mentioned in the Old Testament. And that means technically this was the greatest military victory in Israel or Judah's history. So this is a big deal. But they came back, and remember, the prophet meets him on their way back in, and it wasn't just like, oh, we won this great victory, let's relax. It's no, this, we were given this victory because we were seeking God, let's continue to seek God, let's make sure we started cleansing the land of idols, let's get them all out. He even removes the queen mother from office because she had an idol. And then it says in verse 9, then he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those who dwelt with them from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon. For they came over to him in great numbers from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. Man, wouldn't that be good? Isn't that a great way to evangelize? You don't have to go pounding on people's doors, arguing with them, pleading begging them. You're just living in such a way that people know God is with you, and so they come over to your side. Now that's part of when, 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 uh, when we read that it is he that gives you the power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant on the earth. That's part of that message. That yes, God loves his kids, and all the earth belongs to him, and so he can give it to whoever he wants, and he's going to give it to us, he loves us. That's part of the, the prosperity message. And so we say, well, when people see how good we're living, they want, to be part, they want to be one of us. Well, that's only part of it. That's not the entire thing that got that, uh, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, all these people defected from the northern kingdom. What did they see? Yeah, they saw God taking care of them, but they also saw people openly and enthusiastically serving and worshiping the one true God. They were bold in living their faith, not just flaunting their protection and their prosperity. Is maybe something missing in our message, in our way of life. Don't get me wrong. I think it certainly can be and should be a witness to people that God takes care of us. But they should also see how much we love him. So, they have this great feast and a huge offering. And they entered into this covenant of rededication. The whole nation. And in verse 15 it said, And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart, and sought him with all their soul, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. And there was no war this time for 25 years. 25 years of rest, 25 years of prosperity, and during that whole time, Asa's heart remained loyal, and the people's heart remained loyal. Idolatry did not begin to creep back into the country. What it doesn't say, I think there is, as you read it, I won't develop this today because I don't, I, don't, I don't see enough in there to make a case. I think there's at least a hint that during that time, perhaps their defensive preparations kind of went by the wayside. I'm not saying they disbanded the army or anything like that, 
But something's going to happen where he has to build up some cities a little bit later. It makes, makes you wonder, well, they had 25 years. In, uh, they, they did all of the, the spiritual stuff right, but they did not continue to fortify the cities. Again, I don't want to make too big a deal out of it, but it might be important considering what happens next. Because what happens next is that Basha, king of Israel, came and he laid siege to Judah. There's an outpost city out there called Ramah, or Ramah. And he built it up and, and turns it into sort of a gateway to keep people from getting out of Jerusalem, keep people from getting into Jerusalem. And uh, he, again, he's laying siege to a prosperous and very capable kingdom. And uh, he's laying siege to this kingdom while the king is the one who had presided over the greatest military victory in their history. Asa has been there before. And I would think, I would think, reading this, again, because it appears there's just a couple of chapters separating these events. He goes out against Zerah the, the Ethiopian. Oh, Todd, I'm sorry. I told you I was going to cut today's sermon short because I knew you had to leave early. But uh, we'll, uh, you can download the rest of it. I had to give him a hard time. Uh, I would think that since he had been through that, when, when Basha started to lay siege to the nation, he, or to Jerusalem, he could have said, oh Lord, here we go again. Thank you, Lord, for the experience you gave me 25 years ago. We went out against a million-man army then, and they were like nothing to you. Basha is less than that. Don't let him prevail against us, Lord. Help us to walk in that same victory. In other words, Similar situation, slightly different tactic, but the problem is no different. This shouldn't be a, what do we do now? This is nothing new. They've been here before. They didn't have to do anything different. They had to do the same thing again. This is why I shared my backstory last week. The story about my back, not my backstory, not my background. I'm talking about the story about my back. I fought the same battle twice, and I didn't have to do anything different the next time. Had to do the same thing. Had to do it longer. And it looked a little different, felt a little different, but it was the same battle, fight it the same way. This is what Asa should have done. What did he do instead? Well, sadly what he did was he took silver and gold from the house of the Lord and used it to bribe Ben-Hadad of Syria to break his treaty with Israel and join him. And it worked. Basha, king of Israel, had to back off. He stopped building up Ramah, and Asa went in there at this point and used the leftover building supplies to fortify some of these other outpost cities. The problem with that arrangement is twofold. One is that Syria was a historical, uh, an historical enemy of Judah. These were not the good guys. God had promised by covenant that he would drive all of Israel's enemies out of the land, and this included the Syrians. So he enters into a treaty with Syria, and one of the things he's going to get dinged for is now he can't do what God was going to, God was going to use Asa, was going to use Judah to judge Syria. But now Judah's in a treaty with Syria. And the other thing, of course, the big thing he did wrong was this wasn't a faith move, was it? 
I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I don't have a battle plan, so I'm going to have to make one on the fly, and my battle plan is simply to buy somebody else's army to get uh, Basha off my back. So then he has another encounter with a prophet in 2 Chronicles 16, beginning in verse 7. And at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet, because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and, throw, to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. <sighs> now, this is actually what I talked about a few weeks ago. So I won't, uh, I won't spend much time on it, but do you see the warning that Hanani gave Asa here about, hey, from now on you're going to have wars? This was not God punishing Asa. I'm so mad at you for not depending on me that I'm just going to make sure you have war after war after war. It's like, no, see, uh, you trusted in me early on, and then you had 25 years of peace where you didn't at least slip into idolatry, but apparently you stopped trusting me. Why did you stop trusting me? Because you didn't have to trust me. You didn't have to trust me for protection. You didn't have to trust me for victory. Why? Because there were no battles. If the only way I can keep you trusting me is to keep you at war, I'll keep you at war. He didn't say from here on out you're going to lose your wars. He says you'll have them. And this made Asa angry. I wonder what would happen if Asa had simply, Hannah and I, you're right. You have described me to a T. I am wrong. Intercede for me and see if the Lord might change his mind. What was David's response when Nathan the prophet confronted him with his sin, which was much worse? Did he, did he throw Nathan in prison? Did he start oppressing the people? Or did he go into his quiet place and write a psalm about it? Psalm 51, as a matter of fact. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Create in me a clean heart. Against you and you only have I sinned. Mm. Getting close to wrapping this up. Asa did not have to anticipate every single possible attack. You know, in my limited military experience, I spent most of my time in the guard as a platoon leader for tow missiles, a tow missile platoon. And it was a pretty straightforward mission. You know, we would set up and, and, and we'd have our, we'd pick out a place where we could engage enemy tanks from as far away as possible. Uh, the, the difficulty as a leader, maybe the hardest thing I had to do, it wasn't hard, it was just, it was time-consuming, was when we had to move from one location to another. We, were, we had vehicles, Jeeps in the early days, and then Humvees. And when we had to make a movement as a platoon, as part of the company, perhaps even as part of the battalion, we would have to map the route. 
And I would have to pour over this map with my squad leaders and try to anticipate this might be a dangerous place for us to be traveling. What if we get attacked by a platoon of riflemen at this location? What if we encounter enemy tanks at this location? And we had to come up with at least an outline of a battle plan, a plan of uh, retaliation of, or defense or counterattack about for every 100 meters or so of movement just by studying the terrain. Now, at the strategic level, you have an office called War Plans. You have where, where the top commanders, they've got War Plans stashed on computer now probably. It used to be probably, I'm sure, just full of file cabinets. What if this country attacks us this way? What if, the, and they had, they had to consider as many contingencies as possible so that they, so that they weren't, uh, there's, there's always going to be a, enough of a reactionary sort of response in times of national emergency, but they wanted to plan for as many things as possible. We don't have to do that. Asa didn't have to do that. Why? Because God always has the battle plan. When the army comes, they go out and say, Lord, it's up to you. We put our trust in you. You're our God. Don't let, them, don't let yourself, don't let us be put to shame. And in some cases, he empowers that army and drives them forward. David, pursue them, for you shall surely overtake them and recover all. In this case, or in Jehoshaphat's case, you're not going to have to fight at all. Just sing while my angels go down there and do the fighting. Asa wasn't rebuked because he failed to anticipate Basha's siege. He was rebuked for responding in fear and putting his trust in Ben-Hadad rather than putting his trust in Jehovah of armies. And here's his sad response to this rebuke. He throws the seer in jail. And even worse, read on, in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, beginning in verse 12, and in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but physicians. So Asa rested with his fathers. He died in the 41st year of his reign. Now what a... After all these victories, all these reforms, all this building, and all this peace, all this prosperity that he reigned over, at the very end of his reign, approximately three years after he throws Hanani the seer in prison, he develops a disease in his feet that is life-threatening. And he couldn't bring himself to repent and seek the Lord even then. It doesn't give us an explanation. Was it pride? Was it guilt? Was it, what was it that kept him from throwing himself on God's mercy? He threw himself on God's mercy and trusted in God's protection when there were a million men coming at him in the form of an enemy army. And now he's got a sickness in his feet that he knows, he has to know, is nothing for God to heal. But he refused to even seek God. Tried to let the doctors deal with it instead. This is not, he's not slamming going to the doctors. He's slamming not involving God. He should have sought the Lord, and he certainly could have. He could, could he have possibly thought that this one rebuke from Hanani meant he was cut off? Again, he certainly didn't have the heart of David. David was rebuked harshly. David had pronounced a death sentence on himself when he heard the story that Nathan gave him. 
And then when he said, no, it's you, he immediately repented. You are right, and I have sinned. He had the right heart. And very quickly, before we wrap up, later on in Judah's history, after the death of one of the all-time greatest kings, this is several generations later, and I'm talking about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was phenomenal. And when he died, his son Manasseh takes over and becomes the all-time worst king in Judah's history. And sadly, the longest reigning king. 55 years, I think, he was on the throne. And I'm not going to go into the sad story of his reign. It's just widely understood Manasseh was bad. But look at this from toward the end of his days. In 2 Chronicles 33, beginning in verse 10. It says this, And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This was a king who had served many, many years in rebellion against God. Utter disregard for the law. And do you know what he did? He started a reform as soon as he was brought back to Jerusalem. And he started to cleanse the land of idols. Just like Asa had done all those years. Just like Hezekiah, his father, had done. And it says in verse 16 there, He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. This was Manasseh. And man, if Manasseh could repent, and God heard his prayers and answered his prayers... How could Asa not? Praise and worship team, come up here. Because the question I have for you is, how can you not? When Lisa was delivering that word today and saying how uh, there were some who were, who were struggling with the victory, they needed the encouragement, they needed to know, uh, and they needed to shout, need to confess that. Here's a possibility that I want to I suggest. Some people, you see the promise, and you know it's what God has wanted for you, but one of the things you struggle with is, I don't deserve it. I blew it. I have been rebuked and rightly rebuked. And remember, not too long ago when we were in Hebrews and how we read that God chastens those he loves. For what purpose? For correction. To get us back into position to receive the things he promised for us. Stand up. I never want to say anything that makes you think your sin is not a big deal. If your sin wasn't a big deal, Jesus would not have had to die for your forgiveness. But he did. Your big deal sin was dealt with at the cross. Now, when you stumble, when you backslide, when you sin, even in your redeemed state, you have to understand that God still hates sin. And he will send correction. He will chasten. He will rebuke. But he will not reject you. 
and he will not allow you to be disqualified from the promise. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Every stinging rebuke, every trip to the woodshed is designed to get us back into a position to receive the things he wants for us even more than we want for ourselves. It, it still boggles my mind. I love King Asa because he ruled so well for so long and he did it so enthusiastically. He just didn't finish well. He couldn't bring himself to ask God, couldn't bring himself to repent and ask God to heal his feet. There's another sermon that I, or portion of that sermon that I left out this time and we may pick it up there next week. We might go a different direction. But it's this whole deal where, well, I haven't asked for his help all this time, and now that I'm trouble, now that I'm in trouble, I shouldn't ask now. Yeah, you should. That's exactly what Manasseh did. Manasseh didn't even backslide. He was just a bad king from the beginning. He didn't even think about God until he was in hooks and chains. And God still heard his prayer. You think he's not going to hear yours? He's a good God. He delights in saving us. So, first of all, you saved. Have you cried out for salvation itself? Have you trusted Jesus Christ, God the Son, for salvation? Everybody needs it. When we were talking at the beginning about the, the whole mess with politics, the reason democracy doesn't work perfectly is the same reason that, that communism doesn't work. It's because at the heart of those, that, that those uh, political systems is sinful man. We are always going to mess it up. We need to be different people. We need a transformation sin. Every person was born with it and we cannot enter the kingdom of God. We can't even see the kingdom of God until that's been dealt with. So Jesus went to the cross and his death and his blood paid the price that that sin made us, uh, uh, made us owe. So it's paid. And so at some point every one of us, every one of us individually not by joining a church, not by being raised in a Christian family, individually we have to say God that is me. I see myself now in scripture. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. You are my Lord. Please take my life. Take over. I believe you're exactly who you say you are in the word. But Romans chapter 9, chapter 10. If you will uh, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Does anybody want to make that confession for the first time today? You say, I need to be saved, Scott. I believe Jesus is Lord. I want to be born again today. I want that transformation to take place in my life. Anybody? All right, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Then let us remember a couple of things. Even though we have a new and better covenant, even though we are living transformed lives, and even though the enemy has been defeated, we still have an enemy kind of like those soldiers in, on, on outposts after World War II that didn't get the word of the surrender, so they kept fighting. They're already officially a defeated enemy, but they still have to be put down. We're an occupying army. What we have to remember is this. God has the battle plan. We don't need to scramble. We just need our first, it's all about this reaction. When bad news happens, when an attack comes, our reaction needs to be, God, I didn't see this coming, but you did. Thank you that you're in charge. It's not, it's easy for you to save by many or by few. Don't let me see shame in this. Don't, don't, don't let your name be muddied by this. 
Help me to walk in the victory that you've already provided. Heart of thanksgiving. Heart of thanksgiving. Amen. Uh, I'm going to, I will pray a closing prayer uh, along with the offering prayer because at this time we want to go ahead and, uh, and prepare to receive the offering. I know that many of you put it in on your way in, but I still want to include this as part of our worship because, again, I always like to stress that uh, the offering, the tithes, this is not something, okay, now the, the worship service is over, time to pay the bills. No, uh, part of our worship is our giving. Just like our singing, just like the sermon, just like our prayers, our giving is a part of our worship. It's a very important part of our worship. It is a giving of our substance. It's a very physical way. We take our physical labor, whatever it is we do to earn a living, and by taking a portion of that and returning it to God as the tithe, in the form of the tithe and the offering, we are giving literally of ourselves. And this pleases God. It's obedience and it's faith because when we give, we give trusting that he is always going to take care of us. He's the one who gives seed to the sower, bread to the eater. He's the one uh, who will not be mocked. And therefore, with the same measure that we sow, we shall reap. And so we're to give obediently, but we're also to give cheerfully and give expectantly. Are you ready to give this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we don't have to win the victory that you've given us the victory to celebrate forgive us for times not forgive us for times Lord when we've opened the door to the enemy forgive us for our sins but Lord forgive us for the times when we simply didn't respond correctly forgive us for times of responding in fear responding in panic responding in desperation help us to remember that nothing takes you by surprise. Help us to walk in the peace that you promised because we can trust in you completely. Thank you for the victory in our lives, Lord God. Help us in the face of everything that's, that would try to interrupt that peace and steal from us, that in the midst of that, we would always, always raise our hallelujah and shout the victory in the midst of those situations. I pray, Lord God, for every believer in this room, they would have a fresh conviction of just how much you love us. I pray for any unbeliever in this room that they would desperately desire to know you like that. And that I pray, Lord, that we as a church would so well live the gospel and preach the gospel that, they would, that we would be like the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Judah in the time of King Asa, where people from the other side will defect and join your family because they can see that you are indeed with us. One of the ways you're with us, Lord, is you have so abundantly provided for us, and it is our privilege at this moment to celebrate that by returning a portion of that to you in our obedience to your command to bring the tithe and the offering into the storehouse. And we believe that as we do it, Lord, you will do exactly what you said you'd do, exactly what you said you'd do. You will open up the windows and pour out windows of heaven and pour out blessing there's not room enough to contain. Father, we'll make more room because we'll shovel that right on out toward the ministries that you have partnered us with. We will be a blessing in this community, in this nation, and around the world. Thank you, Lord, for your provision and for this moment of bringing that offering to you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you give and remain where you're at. Anybody need an envelope?
Sorry, if I need an envelope for if you're giving cash, of course, you know, make checks out to LWFC. Praise the Lord. Let's sing and wait until the uh, ushers dismiss you from the rear before you leave. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.